0: Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1 and while you're finding Revelation 1 let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Our Father we come to you this evening we have had a a full Lord's Day and how glorious it is to just overflow with truth to fill our hearts and our minds with glorious truths and this morning we sang of glorious truths and we were reminded of the gospel we were reminded of the the urgency of the gospel. And this evening, Lord, I pray that our hearts are turned heavenward and turned toward the future, turned toward that day when Christ will return and when he will reign as he rightfully ought to do. Lord, I pray that as we continue building a foundation to understand what the Bible says about the future reign of Christ, I pray that it It changes our hearts. It changes our minds. It it helps us to read the Bible in a way that understands the full orb story of the redemptive plan of God. I pray that tonight would help us in that endeavor. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, as you recall, uh, before I started preaching the Millennium Series, I did a little focus group with many of you because I wanted to make sure that, uh, as I said, once or twice before that I didn't end up preaching Sunday evening service down to three people whose last name is Swartz. And I wanted to let you know that building a foundation about this topic is so very important. I, I believe that if you'll stick with me through this extended foundation, it'll change the way you read the Bible. It'll change the way you understand scripture. It'll it'll elevate your understanding of the overall plan of God. And so in our series on the millennium, we continue building kind of a pyramid, we've said. We're we're putting significant numbers of months on the lower foundation stones. That's going to make placing the higher foundation stones easier. It's very tempting to jump right to the particulars, to jump right to what's the millennium going to be like? Because we're so much in the minority in Christianity on this issue, though, I felt like we should take really exceedingly great care to build our case and to understand this. And we're in a small mini series I've called Premillennial Foundations. And in the first two messages, I outlined the legacy of premillennialism. And tonight, I'd like to begin outlining the methods of premillennialism. And, and the reason this is important, because we're essentially asking the question how do we arrive at the theological conclusions? Of the belief that in the future, Christ will return, set up an intermediate kingdom on earth, reign for a thousand years, then bring about the final judgment of the lost in the final state. Why do we believe this? Did I just show up at Grace Bible Church and read it in the doctrinal statement and say, well, I guess that's what I'm supposed to believe. How did we come to that conclusion? Now, just to be certain we're speaking the same language, let me brief you, rem- briefly remind you of a, a couple of definitions just to kind of get some words in our minds. I use the word premillennialism a lot, but that's just simply the belief that Christ returns prior to setting up his kingdom. That's what premillennialism is in its simplest form. We also have spoken extensively about amillennialism. It literally means no millennium. That's the belief system that says that Christ is reigning over the earth right now. His kingdom is now. It's set up on the earth now through the church. That the glorious reign of Christ on earth is happening now. That the church is the new Israel now. The promises of the Old Testament to Israel are transferred to the church because Christ uh, was rejected by Israel. And then there's the belief that's really making the resurgence these days post-millennialism post or after the millennium says that the spread of the gospel will transform the world until it's christianized and the kingdom of christ is brought into the world and then christ will return as the the capper the icing on the cake and then sometimes they use the word dispensationalism and that's a, a big long word and i wish we had a different word than that but that's the one we're kind of stuck with and that is the belief that the Bible is one unified story with a redemptive plan of God carried out in various eras. And, and there's really just a couple of important features of dispensationalism that we rely on a Bible study method that doesn't default to spiritualizing texts of prophecy. We don't make things mean something they don't mean. And we see a future for literal Israel as the saved lead nation of the world. And we see a distinction between Israel and the church. The church is the body of believers between Pentecost and the rapture or the second coming, depending on what rapture view you might take. And then one more word, most important for tonight, hermeneutics. The the first book I read on hermeneutics, the first chapter was called Herman Who? And so we understand that hermeneutics, another word we're stuck with, just means Bible study methods. Methods for interpreting literature of any kind, and even, even those in the literary world use the word hermeneutics. How do you interpret literature? So just a reminder of some, some terms there. And like the last two messages, this is really one message in two parts, the methods of premillennialism. And, and I really only have one goal, and it's one I'm very passionate about as a shepherd of Christ's church, and that is to show you that you may take the Bible at face value. And you might say, well, that's obvious. Everybody believes you may take the Bible at face value. No, you're in the minority of those who believe that you should take the Bible at face value. You are the minority. And so I want to give you confidence that you may trust what you read and that what you read is what God intended to say the first time and that meanings of Scripture aren't so obscure that only a select few can understand them. Now, right about now, it would be reasonable to be asking yourself or maybe whispering to the person next to you, why am I being subjected to a sermon, yay, even a two-part sermon on Bible study methods? What kind of sermon is that? And you might even be trying to time your exit from when I look at my notes, and I'll just make sure and get you. Uh, We have a facial recognition system in our security cameras that emails me automatically, anybody who left early. Why is this so important? Why, why go down to the, the foundation? Because your theology determines how you live. It determines everything about your life. And how you live before the Lord is so important. And so answering the question of how do I determine my theology, that's of vital importance. That has to do with Monday all the way through Sunday. And as premillennialists, our basic point of contention with any other theological system is that you must get the order, listen carefully, you must get the order of theology and hermeneutics correct. A theological viewpoint, a theological system, a theological opinion is not a hermeneutic. It's not a Bible study method. You can't mix those two up. Why is that so important? Because now you're interpreting the Bible according to the theological lens that you chose to believe before you opened your Bible. And that's incorrect. Covenant theologian, Douglas Van Dorn, in his covenant theology text, writes this. Quote, covenant theology, and by the way, covenant theology is strongly associated with amillennialism, so we can really make these very parallel. But he says covenant theology is a way of reading scripture. Now, do you see the fallacy with that? That first you believe a theological system, and then you open your Bible and study the Bible through the lens of that system. One of my favorite writers in this area, theologian Richard Mayhew, he hits back hard on this point. He wrote this A theology is not a hermeneutic. Good hermeneutics, principles of interpreting literature applied by skillful exegesis, can lead to a theology, but not the reverse. When they, meaning non-premillennialists, do not reach their preconceived theological end using normal hermeneutics, which has served them well in all other areas of theology, they change their hermeneutic to yield the predetermined conclusions they began with. Let me just boil that down. That the hermeneutic that we use, a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic that gives us an accurate understanding of Christ, an accurate understanding of the Trinity, an accurate understanding of all things theological, all of a sudden, if you change it because your view of the church, your view of Israel, and your view of the end times doesn't fit your, doesn't fit your Bible study method, and you change your Bible study method, there's a huge problem with that. And I think anybody could see the, the logical nature of not doing that. And specifically when dealing with the identity of the church, the future of Israel, and the end times in general, Bible study methods changed to fit the theology. Now there's a problem. Dr. Charles Ryrie wrote in his usual understandable style, he said this, All doctrine must be built on sound principles of interpretation, Otherwise, the doctrine must be changed. In other words, if your theology doesn't fit your Bible study system, you don't change your Bible study system, you change your theology. And so in this message in two parts, I want to show you the methods of premillennialism so that you can be confident that you may know what the Bible teaches. And I'm passionate about that. I am very much against the idea that somehow you need experts to understand the Bible. And I'm going to go into that in detail. So here are the broad topics I'm going to show you both tonight and next time. I want to start off showing you the slippery slope of separating God's people from God's word. And I'd like to show you a modern day example of the slippery slope. I want to show you the basic principles of premillennial hermeneutics, just, just real basics. And then next time, we'll look at specific principles of interpreting Bible prophecy And I'd like to close off this long message in two parts with what I'll just call the appeal of premillennialism. And I'm going to end our next message quoting to you from a brigadier general of the United States Marine Corps. I'll just put that in your mind uh, for next time. At the end of our time tonight and the end of our time next time, I'm going to show you some practical and important applications because that's the whole point of preaching is to apply the word of God. And we will be in Revelation 1. It'll be a bit before we get there. But I I want to show you first what I'll call the slippery slope of separating God's people from God's word. Now, I have uh, some friends who are fully in support of preaching long messages about studying the Bible and about the veracity of Scripture. Uh, Most of them are dead, but they are friends nevertheless. Nevertheless, There's another man who would be all for taking the time to give a couple messages on the need for God's people to understand God's word. And that is our brother in the faith, William Tyndale. William Tyndale was a key figure in the early English reformation. He believed that England was in a sad spiritual state and he was correct. And, and he diagnosed that the main problem spiritually in England was that the only Bibles available were in Latin and they were all owned by the Catholic church. There were no Bibles. And he felt it would be impossible to evangelize the lost unless they could grasp the truth of the gospel in their own language. In the early 1520s, Tyndale was dining with a Catholic priest with a number of other guests. And the Catholic priest told Tyndale, we had better be without God's law than the popes. In other words, it's better to be without the Bible than without the pope. Tyndale retorted to all the other dinner guests he said I defy the pope and all his laws and he said if God spared his life before many years he would cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scripture than than he does pointing at his priest that I want the uneducated kid driving the plow to know more of the bible than this priest now that idea wasn't original with Tyndale the Greek scholar Erasmus had just published his Greek New Testament based in the many Greek New Testament manuscripts that he'd studied and consulted. And his hope was that translators would use this Greek New Testament to put the New Testament into the language of the people, that whatever language the New Testament scholar understood, that he would then put it in his people's language. And he wrote this in the preface to his Greek New Testament. I would to God that the plowman would sing a text of the scripture at his plow and that the weaver would hum them to the tune of his shuttle. William Tyndale made it his life's ambition to translate the Bible into English, and this eventually caused his martyrdom. He was burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church. Why was the Roman Catholic Church so intent on keeping the Bible out of the hands of the people? Because by retaining control of the Bible, they retained control of the people. Because all they had to do was to say this is what the Bible says. And if nobody could challenge them, then they kept all the power. Catholicism's power over people depends on asserting that they're the only ones who can rightly interpret the Bible. Well, from the Catholic vantage point, the glory days of no one being able to have the Bible except the priests for themselves, those days are over. So the Catholic religion has had to reassert itself. Today... The Catechism of the Catholic Church says this: "Quote, sacred tradition and sacred Scripture make up the single sacred deposit of the Word of God." So they assert that Scripture and Church tradition are equal in authority. And as if that isn't bad enough, here's where they take it to the next step. Catechism also says, "Quote, the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition." has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops. And you might say, well, I'm not Catholic, so I don't have to worry about that. Nobody's trying to separate me from the word of God. Oh, yes, they are. Yes, they are. Here's a question. Is there a system of theology prominent in Protestant circles which is undiscernible to you unless experts shed light on it. Is there a system that claims that you must have theologians explain it to you for you to really understand what the Bible actually means? Is there a system? Now, I'm not talking about the legitimate role of gifted Bible teachers. I'd be out of a job if that was the case. We explain scripture to you, but listen carefully. Ultimately, the Bible study methods, the hermeneutics that I use are just as accessible to you. You could, given the time, study Greek and Hebrew. You also could do contextual studies, historical studies of a Bible text. You could make observations of a text. Given enough time and effort, you could come to the same conclusions that I do. I just do it faster because I'm experienced and I devote all my time to it. By the way, that's the joy of preaching That you get the benefit of my formal training of 30 plus years of teaching the Bible of the 15 hours or so I spend on every message and it all gets compressed into an hour and you get the benefit of that. That's the joy. But I believe with all of my heart that given enough time, enough resources with the proper Bible study methods, you could come to the same conclusions. In fact, here at Grace, we make opportunities available for you to learn those Bible study methods so that you can feed yourself the word of God. But back to my question, is there a system of theology prominent in Protestant circles which is undiscernible unless experts explain it to you and shed light on it? that no amount of simply studying the text of Scripture and studying supporting materials such as language studies, grammatical studies, historical backgrounds, and so forth, that no amount of study would be sufficient to lead you to the truth for which you must have theologians, for them to say, here's what it really means. Yes, covenant theology and amillennialism. Amillennialism would be at the top of that list, which tells us that the church is the new Israel, That the national, literal promises to Abraham are now symbolic of the church and that Christ is reigning over the earth now just from a distance. Listen very carefully. Those conclusions are not taken from this text of scripture. They're taken from a theological system that has to be explained to you. So let me give you a modern day example of attempts to separate God's people from God's word. That you need experts, so-called, to tell you what the Bible really means. I believe with all of my heart that a legitimate interpretation of Scripture can never be so far removed from the plain meaning of Scripture that it can't be understood without special insight, without extra biblical sources, without men that that nearly have halos on them. The reason so many believe that the Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel are largely symbolic, that Israel has been replaced by the church, there's only one reason, because theologians have told you so. That's the only reason. And this is very confusing because these theologians historically are good and godly and kind and and wonderfully holy men of God who love the Lord with all of their heart that we would easily fellowship with that we would break bread with that we would uh, receive the Lord's table with that we would share so much together. And so why would we doubt them? I don't doubt their sincerity whatsoever. I just doubt their methods with as much respect and love as I can. Now, I want to give you a modern day example. And so we're going to get into the weeds of some deep details. But before you take a breath and go, oh, no, here we go. The details aren't important. The point of the lengthy illustration I'm about to give you is to just show you that today, really any system of theology that is not premillennial relies on experts, relies on historical figures to tell you what is true and what is not. Or, or maybe if I could put it this way before I get into the details of, of this example. As a shepherd, I really work hard to try to remember that for most of you, you're going to get up tomorrow morning and. If you're, if you're really blessed, you may get 15, 20 minutes in the word of God. Maybe you'll get up a little extra early and you'll, you'll have an hour in the word and time to pray. But then you've got to make a living. You've got to support your family. You've got a whole bunch of kids you've got to deal with. You've got issues in life and, and maybe you'll even have time for, for some prayer in the evening. I want to make sure that I never teach you in a way that says you can't know what the scripture says unless I tell you. So I'm going to dive into the weeds of this detail here. It's just an example. You don't have to remember the details. You'll understand my point when we get to the end. My example is the book of Revelation. There are basically two views of the book of Revelation. There's subcategories of these views. I won't detail it here, but one view is called the progressive sequence view, and that's just what it sounds like that Generally speaking, with a few interruptions, the book of Revelation progresses chronologically, one thing after another, especially from chapter 6 onward, and that this happens, then that happens, and so forth, all the way to the return of Christ in chapter 19 and 20. Chapter 6 begins the tribulation period, and chapters 19, 6 through 19, highlight events over the next seven years of the tribulation and great tribulation. That's the progressive sequence view. The other big view is called the recapitulation view. The recapitulation view says that the events of Revelation must be interpreted, especially from chapter 6 onward, the, the beginning of the opening of the seal judgments, as repeating specific events in history that all have happened between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That the seal judgments, which are first, represent things that have happened already. Then the trumpet judgments are a repeat from a different angle. Then the bowl judgments are another repeat from a different angle. And there's many, many different variations of the recapitulation view. I'll give you one example. And again, the details don't matter. It's just for example's sake. One theologian, William Hendrickson, arranges the book in this fashion. The revelation is divided into seven sections. The first three sections describe events on the earth between the first and second coming of Christ from chapter 1 to 11 The last four sections describe events in heaven between the first and second coming of Christ from chapters 12 to 22. Now, there's some accuracy to this. To be very clear, Revelation does depict scenes both on earth and in heaven, but do they all occur in some sort of parallel fashion? Cornelius Venema, the amillennial theologian I've quoted a number of times because he's written really the, the premier theology on amillennialism, In his Theology of the End Times, he gives the following proofs that the recapitulation view is correct. Here are his proofs. Quote, most interpreters agree, unquote. Well, can you prove that? That's not provable. More accurately, most interpreters I like agree. He says this, quote, students of the book of Revelation have observed that it is structured in a way which repeats or recapitulates events and periods of history covered in preceding or following visions. This is just another way of saying other people have the same assumptions about Revelation that I do. It's not proof. And he says this. It is a commonly acknowledged feature of the book that it should not be read as a linear description of end time events. Commonly acknowledged by who? Not by me. That's not proof. That's not Bible study. that's, That's not a hermeneutic. That's quoting other people who agree with you and saying, see, a lot of people agree with me. Listen to this explanatory footnote in Venema's work to explain how to understand Revelation. This is how you are to read the book, how to understand it. Hang on. Quote. A futurist reading of the book says that the events described in prophecy are events yet to occur in the future, primarily in the period just prior to Christ's coming at the end of the age. An historicist reading of the book identified the events in the visions of Revelation with historical developments throughout the history of the church. An idealist reading of the book says that the visions and prophecy of Revelation refer to events that typify the principles and forces at work in the entire period of history between Christ's first and second coming. See G.K. Beal, the book of Revelation, pages 44 through 49. Following Beel, who argues for an eclecticism or, quote, redemptive historical form of modified idealism, it is best to read the book of Revelation. Here are your instructions. I knew you were waiting for this. It's best to read the book of Revelation, not exclusively in terms of one of these approaches, but inclusively in terms of the insights of each. In other words, you are to read the book of Revelation with the viewpoint of a redemptive historical form of modified idealism. What? I have more degrees than a thermometer and I have no idea what this guy is talking about. Where does that leave you as the regular Christian getting up tomorrow morning and giving up a half hour of sleep so that you can read the glorious book of Revelation being told, well, you need to read it from a redemptive historical form of modified idealism. You know what that says? It says, you poor slobs can't actually understand it unless you ask me, ask a theologian. It leaves you wallowing in the dust of the theologians that are now necessary to tell you how to believe. Just a little side note, in contrast to this, Dr. Robert Thomas, some years ago in his study on the structure of Revelation, he reported that there is a measure of recapitulation. There are events that happen in the same time period. We already know that. Revelation 11, there are two witnesses happening in the same time period as the first six trumpet judgments. There are a couple of interruptions to the chronology. We all agree on that. But Thomas, rather than just quoting a bunch of scholars who agree with him, did a significant analysis based on the context, using hermeneutics, the purposes of various judgments, the use of Greek terms which indicate the chronological sequence of events. He cites 82 different sources on both sides of the argument. And his analysis in hermeneutics leaves you with this result. He says this, quote, aside from the interruptions, something inserted into the chronology, There is a forward movement in the book from chapter 6 toward a climax in the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. Now, after all of that, you say, what are you talking about? I believe with all of my heart that you can understand the book of Revelation, and we're here already. You've already turned to Revelation 1. Which one is correct? Do you just read it as a chronology or do you need a theologian to say, here are all the various complicated layers and you really can't understand it unless I am sitting right next to you? Revelation 1.19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. What is Jesus speaking of here? The vision of verses 1 through 18, these things which you have seen, the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, the things that are, and the things that come after that, introduced by chapters 4 and 5 and beginning chronologically in chapter 6. Turn with me to chapter 4. We're going to go to a bunch of chapters very quickly. Chapter 4, verse 1. You be the judge. Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked... Chapter 5, verse 1, then I saw. Now, it could be and I saw, but the translators accurately indicate the sequence of events. Chapter 6, verse 1, then I looked when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. Chapter 7, verse 1, and I'm having you look at this so you can get this in your brain that you understand Revelation. Chapter 7, verse 1, after this I saw. Chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded. Chapter 10, verse... Can you figure out what we're doing so far? Chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw. And we'll skip a couple. Go to chapter 13, verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw. Chapter 14, verse 1, then I looked. Chapter 15, verse 1, then I saw. Chapter 16, verse 1, then I heard. Chapter 18, verse 1, after these things I saw. Chapter 19, verse 1, after these things I heard. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw, chapter 22, verse 1. Then he showed me. And then chapter 22, verse 7. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And if that sounds familiar, the book begins with the same blessing in Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is he who reads and who, he, those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, I have a question for you. If to be blessed and encouraged by the book of Revelation, you must understand that you need an eclectic, redemptive, historical form of modified idealism, what does that do to your motivation to read it? What does that do to your ability to understand it? It locks up the book to the average Christian. It closes it to you. Or if I could put it this way, it seals the book where you can't understand it. Look with me at verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. I believe with all of my heart that you can know and even to whatever extent you have the time, the inclination and the ability, you can understand precisely how we have come to believe that the story of the Bible is completely consistent with itself from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and has never changed. Now, just to lightly explain, not a technical explanation at all, how do we come to these conclusions? Let me just highlight the basic principles of premillennial hermeneutics and and, and I'm gonna keep this as basic as I can. But first, just kind of a high flyover of what I'm talking about. Every disagreement on prophetic passages, particularly in the Old Testament, every disagreement boils down to how do you interpret? What is your method? A literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic simply says that the words of the Bible are to be understood in their plain and ordinary meaning. Now, that doesn't exclude the use of symbolism in the Bible, and I'll get to that a little bit more later. But symbolism is, is generally clear, and just because symbolism exists extensively in the Bible doesn't mean that the reader has the freedom to just decide that something is symbolic, only because a literal reading would interfere with a preconceived theological position— Let me put it to you this way. If my wife leaves a note for me and it says, please pick up potatoes at the store. And if my theological system says, I don't feel like picking up potatoes at the store. So she's simply being symbolic. She's just saying, I want you to think about picking up potatoes. Or I actually meant uh, I want you to pick up uh, candy bars and ice cream. That's what I really meant. No, we don't get to do that, particularly with the Bible. This is the difference between these technical terms of exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis means that you take out of something, that we, we take out of the word of God what it gives us. Eisegesis is a Greek word that means to put into something, to impose a belief system on the text, to manipulate the text to mean something that the author never intended. If I could get a little bit more to the heart here, exegesis is a position of humility Eisegesis is a position of pride, really the ultimate pride, because the student of Scripture is imposing a new meaning, reinterpreting the very words of God. You know who the very first student of the Bible to reinterpret the words of God was? Satan, in the Garden of Eden. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? That's not what God said, but he reinterpreted it, and Eve fell for it. Now, there are a lot of subdivisions, but for the sake of simplicity and clarity, let me boil down the basic parts of how we study the Bible into four principles. This is how we arrive at the theology that we cherish, and, and I'll give you some examples just so it's not just a, a dry lecture here. Our first principle is we interpret grammatically. We interpret grammatically, and I, I don't know about you, when I was in ninth grade and my English teacher said, we're going to study grammar. I, a part of me died inside, just just a little bit, because I didn't see the meaning of it. Well, now grammar is about the most important thing in my life because it determines the meaning of a text. That the exact words, the meanings, the phrases, and the sentences, they matter according to the normal rules of grammar for the language. That the tenses of verbs, is it past tense? Is it future tense? Is it present? And in Greek and Hebrew, there's a whole bunch more than just past, present, and future the gender of the nouns, is it male, is it female? The placement of the words, is there a, a, an emphatic placement? And so forth. These things matter. And I'll, I'll give you an example, one that you're familiar with. In John 8, 58, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And you say, well, that's a nice little sentence. Do you remember what happened right after that? A bunch of men picked up stones and tried to murder Jesus. You want to know why? Because of the tense of the verbs. I am. It's a present active indicative verb. It's not past tense. It's not future tense. It's a present fact that's always true. And yet Jesus combined it with a different verb form translated before Abraham was. You put together before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming eternal existence. He's claiming to be God. Grammar matters. Here's a second principle, interpret contextually, interpret with the context. Every verse in the Bible has a connection to the immediate and farthest context of Scripture. Every verse has connections to one or more explicit covenants described in Scripture. And this is a key to uh, understanding what the author intended. The respect for the intentional, the, the original intentions of the author The author explains himself best. I don't get to tell Moses what he meant. Moses must tell me what he meant. This includes the original readers, the intended audience, the historical situation, the overall theme of the book. This means that geography matters, that history matters. Everything surrounding the occasion of the writing matters. And this is this lack of interpreting contextually. This is the bane. This is the enemy of American evangelicalism. This is uh, the lack of interpreting uh, contextually has made Christian bookstores millions and millions of dollars because they put out little books with Bible promises for you, and they just rip a bunch of verses out of the context and charge you fourteen ninety five for it. Let me give you an example. This is one of my favorites. Psalm 46.10, and you're probably more familiar with the English Standard Version, Be still and know that I am God. The LSB says, Cease striving and know that I am God. Context matters. You've probably all seen posters, and you might be going, Oh man, I have that painted on my wall at home. Um, Be still and know that I am God. It it sounds like a, a gentle hand on the shoulder. Be still and know that I am God. In context, God is giving a declaration that war on the earth will end and he will end it and he'll be exalted among all the nations. And in fact, it features the actual presence of God with his armies of angels. Yahweh of hosts is with us in verse 11. Be still or cease striving is a declaration that God will violently and forcibly stop war, specifically the war against him. Psalm 46 was Most likely written in honor of the time that the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians and saved Jerusalem. 2 Kings 18 and 19 records this. The Assyrians ceased striving. They were still. You want to know why? Because they were dead. The Israelites ceased striving. They were still. You want to know why? Because all their enemies were dead. There's no battle to fight when all your enemies just drop dead. There's a third principle. Interpret scripture with scripture. Interpret scripture with scripture. This is why trying to discuss theology with somebody who doesn't understand this is so very frustrating because they just rip verses out that seem to support their favorite views. We use parallel passages of scripture to reinforce the interpretation of both. We use the more clear text to interpret the less clear texts, And this absolutely defeats those who claim to believe the entire Bible is the word of God and let and yet they reject specific prophetic revelation because it doesn't fit their framework, doesn't fit their theology. I'll give you another example. The end of Isaiah 24 describes a day when the whole earth is shaken and shattered and that after that time, God will, quote, punish the host of heights on high. These are demons. And the kings of the earth on the earth. In other words, spiritual forces will be punished in the spiritual realm and human forces will be punished in the earthly realm. And then the Lord will punish, verse 22, in the pit, or in the dungeon, or the abyss. And after a time of being in the abyss, there will be a punishment. Now, what is that talking about? Well, by interpreting Scripture with Scripture, you can look ahead to the clearer text of Revelation 20, that right after the Lord Jesus Christ has destroyed his enemies on earth, kings of the earth on the earth, then Satan, and by inference, all of his demons, the host of heights on high, will be thrown into the pit or the dungeon or the abyss, bound for a thousand years, then released briefly, only to be judged and thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. Scripture interprets scriptures. One more big picture method we interpret progressively. We interpret progressively. The the Bible is governed by progressive revelation. Revelation. God revealed the knowledge of his redemptive plan progressively over about 1,500 years and later more specific revelation never contradicts and certainly never changes the meaning of previous revelation. If pre- previous revelation is going to change, now you're at the mercy of theologians who have to tell you what's changed and what hasn't and you have to find out. And then whether you do when a bunch of them disagree with each other? Now you're in trouble. Or to put it this way, The amillennialist will begin with the assumption that the Bible should be read from the New Testament going backwards to the old. The premillennialist begins with the more reasonable assumption that the Bible should be read from the beginning forward. How does the Bible begin? In the what? Beginning? Doesn't it seem logical to start there? And that God reveals his plan carefully over stages and over time. To not respect progressive revelation is like building a house and trying to change the foundation while the walls are being framed. That makes no sense. The foundation must remain the same. I'll give you an illustration. Progressive revelation is the only logical way to interpret scripture to, for example, see the obvious truth that the first revelation of Messiah in all of the Bible, Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel, that that first revelation of Messiah is much better understood with the progressive revelation of Isaiah three five. but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his Wounds, we are healed, and that's completely, totally clear with the progressive revelation of the death and the resurrection of Christ and the subsequent preaching of this truth by the apostles. Like Peter proclaimed in Acts 2, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. See also Genesis 3.15, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. The God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. That's the same truth as Genesis 3.15. It's just exploded with detail and understanding. Greater understanding. So you interpret grammatically, contextually, interpret scripture with scripture, interpret progressively. Of course, though, the big question is, this is the one that that sometimes the amateur student of the Bible opens his Bible with fear and trepidation, and the question is, but how do I interpret prophecy? Interpret grammatically, interpret contextually, interpret scripture as scripture, interpret progressively. It doesn't change. Now, I understand that. I understand the question, though. Prophecy is the crux of the whole interpretive debate between premillennialism and every alternative theological system. So how do I interpret prophecy? I will tell you that next time. We hold this very dear, so very dear to us, the declaration of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And of course, Paul is exhorting Timothy to preach the word of God, the sole source of spiritual and heavenly truth. But I want to point something out. There's a symbiotic relationship. There's a relationship that exists between the preacher and the sheep, the shepherd and the sheep, the preacher and theologian such as Timothy, the members of the church such as those in Ephesus, the sheep seeking to know the truth. What is this theological, this symbiotic relationship? I think it's best illustrated by something unique that happened in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul and Silas had been in Thessalonica just for maybe 10, 12 weeks, but they were now in danger. They had to leave. Acts 17, 10 records, and the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. It just means that they were better educated. That's all it means. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things We're so you see the symbiotic relationship, the relationship we have in connection to one another. The preacher conveys information from the word of God, but never as representing a theology that's completely inaccessible to you. Never telling you the only way you'll understand this is if I tell you. In fact, to this day, the phrase be good Bereans means to examine the scriptures for yourselves. I believe with all of my heart that premillennialism encourages you, the Christian, just trying to be light and salt in this world, trying to get through your Monday through Friday as, as accurate representations of Christ Jesus. I believe with all of my heart that you have the confidence, you may have the confidence that God is able to communicate to you directly exactly what he meant. He never intended for specially... Chosen theologians to be the only people who can really tell you what the scripture actually means because you have to view scripture through their theological lens. Someone asked me recently, kind of tongue-in-cheek, are are you trying to get everyone to be premillennial? And my answer is really, not really. I'm trying to get you to believe the Bible at face value because then you'll become premillennial simply by reading the Bible for yourself. And then, you as the blessed, wonderful sheep of God's flock, you will live in light of a coming kingdom of Christ. You are citizens, you are envoys, you are representatives of that kingdom. You'll be urging as many as possible to join you, to join us under the banner of the king of all the kings, who is coming back to take what is rightfully his. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, Your premillennialism, just like it was in the early church, is an extremely high motivator to evangelism. It's really a simple thing that that the gospel is not just Jesus died on the cross for your sins. The gospel is Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, which was rightfully owed to God to stand between you and the wrath of God. He was raised from the dead for your justification to demonstrate that you may be raised as well and to demonstrate that that payment is completely made in full. The payment is, is secured. And then he ascended into heaven where even now he intercedes at the right hand of God the Father on your behalf and then he is returning and he is coming back and he's going to set up a rule and the very first thing he's going to do is that all the people on earth who survive this thing that the Bible calls the great tribulation, all of them will be gathered together and they'll be divided into two camps that the Bible calls the sheep and the goats. Then the goats, those who are not believers in Christ, they will be judged, they will be executed, they will be sent away, they will be gone, they'll be dead, all those who are in Christ at that time will remain. They will survive. All those who have come to faith in Christ will have returned with him at his second coming. And now you'll have these gloriously resurrected saints from the church age reigning over those that come into the millennial kingdom having survived the great tribulation. And now Christ will set up a kingdom for a thousand years. And those who believe on Christ will live to be not just 100, 200, 300. They'll live to be 8 and 900 and a thousand years old. Won't you join me in that kingdom. That's the gospel. The gospel is very premillennial because it goes all the way back to Genesis 1. And so, my hope is that your Bible study method is not just a dry little discussion, but that the Word of God is something that you have confidence in as it opens up these truths and you are light and salt to all around you and you say, Join me in this kingdom that the Bible. Fairly shouts about. That's why Bible study methods are important. We'll finish that, nailing that in next time. Let's pray together. Our Father, may we live in light of a coming kingdom of Christ on earth as citizens and envoys and representatives of that kingdom. May we urge as many as possible to join us under the banner of the king of all the kings who is making ready to take back what is rightfully his I pray for each of these precious believers in Christ, each one you have saved according to your perfect plan. I pray that as they have confidence that you say what you mean and you mean what you say in your word, that as they open the word of God, it continues to be illumined to them, to open to them these wonderful truths. As the writer of Psalm 119 prayed, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. I pray that for each of us, Lord, so that we may be the most effective light, the most effective salt in the dying world to give the light of Christ to the darkness around us. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.